This Choircast podcast is brought to you by There Once Were Orange Groves, an upcoming autofiction novel by David Giles. This is a novel about two siblings, Audrey and Jacob, who are both grieving the sudden passing of their father. This bad news arrives soon after Audrey moves out of California and Jacob returns home from college. This book explores how each of them deals with their grief as it colors their day-to-day lives. It's a novel about stories, finding beauty in the little things, and the places those moments inhabit. Available on Amazon on September 19th. Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is Not Church with John and Nat Turney. All right, all right. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. My name is Nat Turney. I'm with my brother, John, as always, who's uh, nestled up in the uh, in the cozy hills of Northern California, surrounded by cows and pot farmers. Say hi, John. <laughs> hi, John. So, don't I paint a picturesque picture of your life up there on the up on the hill, as we call it? I, I, on the other hand, am out in the wilds of West Texas where I'm only surrounded by, uh, by um, oil derricks and pump jacks. So it's just, it, oh yeah, and jackrabbits. <laughs> There's lots of jackrabbits, John. We, have, uh, we actually there. have jackrabbits too. I, uh, do you have the same problem I do where once they're in your headlights, you cannot get them to leave? They, they follow, they stay. They fixate on you and they, it's like they're all suicidal. I think they all want to die. Yeah. But uh, I avoid them. I don't think I've only run over one or two. But I haven't anyway, had a single one yet, but man, it slows me down. <laughs> it does, they do. We have a we have a bigger problem with like armadillos and stuff ah, like yeah. that. But you know, so there you go. There's our our very picturesque differences. John's someplace nice, and I'm someplace dry and arid, and uh, it smells faintly of uh, methane because of all the gas oil and gas production. It's great. I love it. Um, <laughs> but hey, we're back with another episode of This Is Not Church. Um, we call it that because if this was church, you would have left by now. And uh, as we like to say all the time, we we probably would go with you. <laughs> we're we're about right here with the whole thing, but we'd like to uh, introduce our next guest to you, and we're really excited to have John Blake with us. Let me read you a quick bio, and then we're going to jump right into a conversation about all kinds of cool stuff, especially his new book. So let me read this for you. But John Blake grew up in a notorious black neighborhood in the inner city of Baltimore, or I'm sorry, if you're from Baltimore, I have to say like Baltimore, Balmer, right? If you pronounce Baltimore, you're not from there. So I, I, I did pick that up. It's like saying you're from New Orleans. Like, come on, man. No, so, so inner city Balmer. That was the setting for the HBO series, The Wire. Uh, it was there that he became a self-described closeted biracial person, hostile towards white people while holding the truth of his mother's race. The son of a black man and a white woman who met at a time when interracial marriage was still illegal, Blake knew this much about his mother. She vanished from his life not long after his birth and her family rejected him because of his race. Blake covered some of the biggest stories about race in America for 25 years before realizing that facts don't change people, relationships do. He only discovered that after experiencing what he calls radical integration. It was the only way forward for him and his family, and it's the only way forward for America as a multiracial democracy. More than I imagined is a hopeful story for our difficult times. And with all of that said, my bumbling through it, uh, welcome to the podcast, Mr. Blake. How are you, sir? Fine. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, man. We're so glad you came, man. We uh, are excited. I haven't quite finished your book. John's much more studious about sitting down and finishing. I, I, I read about Two thirds of it, and I said I couldn't put it down. I guess I, I, I guess I fibbed. I did put it down. It was hard to though. <laughs> so, um, really, really interesting. Really great book. I have some connection to that part of the world uh, where you were born and raised, so it's interesting to see it from a different perspective. But if you don't mind, though, maybe just take a little second and tell us a little bit more about yourself that we didn't cover in your bio. I know that was kind of uh, kind of brief. So introduce us to you. Well, um, yeah, I, I work at CNN. I've been a journalist 
at CNN for about 15 years. And before that, I was a journalist uh, in newspapers. So most of my time, I've covered uh, race and politics, the two most polarizing subjects you can cover in this country. And almost any big racial story in the last, say, 25 years, going back to the Rodney King protest, going to Charlottesville, going to Ferguson, January 6th, all that, I've, e- I've either covered or written about it in some degree or another. So race is not only very personal to me because of my personal experience, it's been pretty much dominating my professional life. So the, this book is essentially a, is calling it a memoir fair? I mean, it, it reads more like a story, but it, I mean, it's, it's very much a memoir, right? It is. And you said it reads like a story and, and it is more of like a detective story because it's driven by a lot of mystery. So I grew up in West Baltimore in this all black neighborhood, as you mentioned. It's a pretty well known neighborhood. It's a setting for the HBO series The Wire. Uh, it was also the epicenter for this big uh, race riot slash uprising slash protest in 2015. And so it's an all-black neighborhood, poor, violent. And I grew up knowing that I had a white mother, but that's all I knew. Uh, so when I was young, my family, the only thing they would tell me is that uh, your mother's name is Shirley. She's white and her family hates black people. And so I grew up in this world knowing that my mother's family hated black people but I also grew up in this world where black people hated white people. So I was caught in between. And so part of this detective story is figuring out why did my mom disappear from my life right after I was born and trying to figure out how to connect with her and her family and also kind of trying to uh, kind of connect with things in myself as well. It's interesting too, because I, I, don't, I don't think people realize when we talk about, say, a state like Maryland, how much racially divisive stuff has its roots in the state of Maryland. I, you know, for a long time, I, I lived there for several years and it, it never occurred to me that, you know, Maryland's a Southern state. It's taken south of the Mason-Dixon line. It was, and some of the, and we had, I think it was, was at least Sharon Harper-John that we had on the, on the program who uh, talked about some of the first race laws in this country's history were passed in Maryland. Right, yeah. And, yes. yeah. and then... And so she writes all about how that affected her entire, you know, multi-generations of her family. But I, I don't think people get that. I, it, maybe it just doesn't come to their mind immediately the, of the state of Maryland having that kind of a history, right? So at the time of your parents, I had friends in the early 2000s who, who were, who were uh, military and um, they were an interracial couple and they, they went from Maryland and they moved to Savannah, Georgia. They went to a, a military post there and they told me horror stories in the 2000s about being an interracial couple in, in a Southern state. It's, it seems like one of the last sort of bastions of overt <laughs> like, like racism. I, I don't understand. That's it's really strange to me, but that had to be something that kind of drove your, your parents' lack of a relationship, right? Is, is that fair to say? Yeah, it's some, some context. So when my parents met in the mid-1960s, interracial marriage was illegal in uh, Maryland and in much of the country. So you couldn't get married if you were black and white. I'll give you another example of how taboo those kind of relationships were. In 1968, the singer Hella Belafonte, the singer and activist, was on a British television show. And I don't, I don't know if you remember this. He was singing a duet with a white singer named Batula Clark. And while this was being taped, she touched his arm mm. while this was filmed live. And that caused an uproar. So this is kind of the historical context. A black man like my father could get killed, murdered, literally for seeing 
a woman, uh, a white woman. So my parents met during this time and pursued this relationship and had two sons. And they both uh, displayed a lot of courage to do so because uh, my mother in particular, she, she, she defied her family and her neighborhood, her whole world, to, just to see beyond race. So I, it's hard to talk about the book because I don't want to give away certain parts of the book because uh, like you said, it kind of unfolds like a mystery, right? So if I give away certain things... Yeah, no spoilers, John, no spoilers. Yeah, so I, I, I'm having a hard time uh, coming up with good questions that don't give things away. But one of the questions I would I would ask is, knowing what you know now and then looking back at your father and the kind of relationship you had, would you say that the way your mother left and the reason your mother left were some of the reasons, say, for his drinking, uh, his need to like escape, or or was that just part of his nature? Because I could see both of that, right? I could see that because, again, as things unfold and there is a connection and connections are made, uh, there's even a connection between your mother and your father, right? But would you say that his loss of that connection to her or was he already someone who drank and was someone who had this idea of like kind of getting away for months and months on end? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think the, my father's uh, drinking and carousing predates my mom. He was a merchant seaman. So he traveled around the world and that was kind of, that was the lifestyle of a lot of men who spent their time at sea. And then add to that, he was a, a black man, a very proud black man growing up in the Jim Crow era. So he had to suffer a lot of indignities. So I think that uh, predated him. But one of the things about my father that I try to show in this story is that what I thought he was, I was in some in many ways I was wrong. He was so much more complex and much more interesting than I thought. And it took me a while to see that. And this and that and that applies that to also to my mother and other members of my mother's family. So that's one of the things I try to show uh, that people seem one way, but then as you get to know them and you see the choices they made, they really become a lot even more. So for you though, growing up, knowing you're interracial, but knowing that in you, where you where you were born and raised, that it was more important to be black than to be interracial, right? So you, you talk about how you kind of became a closeted biracial person. Could you speak on that and what exactly, how, how, did, how did that, so was it a secret from like your friends that you hung out with or was it uh, known, but you just kind of like ignored that part of you? I mean, how did, how did that all work out? Okay, I'll answer it. And I, and I might drop a little uh, revelation in a book because I've written about this publicly. So this might make answer, you know, asking questions a little easier. Um, no worries. Yeah. I'll, I'll drop a revelation about my mom. Um, so in a world to answer your question, yeah, I did grow up as a closeted biracial person because uh, in my environment, nobody liked white people, and I was ashamed to have a white mom. But also because there was this, you know, tremendous hostility toward white people, and I felt that myself. And as far as if people knew, you know, I, I don't think they did. You know, it they would be they would become suspicious if they saw me with my father, who was very dark, and and I'm, you know, decidedly right white. But for black people, there are tremendous varieties of looks in the black community. You know, people who are black, so you can you can be closeted. Biracial. So to speed up the story, so I grew up with this shame about, uh, you know, having a white mother, but also grew up with this hostility. And I never really saw white people in my neighborhood during my entire time in school from Head Start to 12th grade. 
I only saw one white student in any of my schools. And we stared at her like she was Bigfoot. And that was a senior high school. We couldn't believe, you know, so it was really racially, racially isolated. So then at 17 years old, I'm about to go to college and my father comes to me and he just says, do you want to meet your mother? And it was like a bombshell. And that's when we get into one of the big revelations of the book. So now I was going to finally find out, you know, why she had disappeared, who she was. And I guess the best I can say about that, that when I saw her, it was such a shock. But what, one of the things that was really important about that meeting, seeing my mom in the condition she was in, it was the first time that I felt any kind of empathy for a white person. I had thought no white person could understand what it meant to be black, to suffer, to be looked down on because of the way you were, you know, because of the way you were born. And but when I met my mom, she shattered all those assumptions within the like the first 15 minutes of, of meeting her. So that was the first time she began to shift my racial attitudes just with her presence alone. Wow. As you said that, I I I think back to the conversations we've had with people over the last couple of years, especially about race and mm-hmm. about say even say sexual orientation or those kinds of things. And those begin those kinds of understandings always seem to hinge on a moment. Where, where empathy creeps in. Yes. And all of a sudden, you get to see somebody else as a human. And you go, okay, all right, you're more than the things you've done to me. Yes. You're a complex person. That goes a long way towards helping to understand. And you must have had, I mean, I, I can't imagine that, that sense of, because you weren't just abandoned by your mother. I mean, your, your father is in and out of your life, your entire life. Right. And not only just in and out of your life, but had left you in precarious, dangerous situations at times. To almost not not almost, I was gonna say to almost fend no, to completely fend for yourself. That must have been devastating to your to your sense of self as a kid. Or did it or did it empower you to from a young age to say, hey, listen, I'm in I'm sort of con- I'm sort of the master of my own destiny here. I feel like it it wasn't devastating because my father's family pitched in. Um, one of the heroes in this story is my aunt, uh, my father's sister. And I think almost every family, regardless of your color, can relate to that, that matriarchal figure who holds the family together, who steps in and watches kids when others, others won't, who, who patches up views or whatever. She was like this superwoman. And so she stepped in and that really helped me. And, and I want to pick up on something you said earlier about empathy. I think that's so key. Um, one of the things I say in my book is that after all my years covering race, and I've talked to some of the most brilliant thinkers about race as well as faith, uh, and they're always talking about how do we shift racial attitudes? Because, for example, we hear a lot of talk about the white church as a problem with you know racism. And there's always this, talk, how do we shift racial attitudes? When people talk about protests, they talk about changing laws, they talk about reading the latest hot book on race and faith. But I tell people, Facts don't change people, relationships do. And that is what I discovered. The things that really shifted me were the relationships I had. And not only did that relationship with my mom was at the beginning, but I began to meet other white Christians in college. And white Christians, the ones that we jump on, were the ones who were the first ones that taught me, maybe you can believe in some white people. Not all white people like this. They were the ones that gave me hope. And it came through these relationships and friendships I've developed with them. Wow, that's great. I mean, it was so so it was Aunt Sylvia, right? Was that the name of your aunt? That, yeah, that was kind of the, yeah. the, the heroine. So she, yeah. Do you credit her then with also instilling some measure of 
of faith and and I mean oh. in in your lives, I mean, she because that, that that wasn't going to come from dad, right? <laughs> I mean, no, no, that wasn't going to come from dad. <laughs> uh, no, <again. laughs> he was a he was a wild man. Um, no, that that was definitely my aunt, and so I tell people, you know, my book is a little bit about dual identity, but it's not just dual racial identity; it's dual Christian identity. So my aunt exposed me to the power of the black church. So, and so I have this black church background, but I also have this kind of sense white evangelical background. So the black church background is those, those Pentecostal black Baptist churches that my aunt forced me to go to as a kid. But I, I absorbed those stories and I saw the power and they kind of gave me spiritual tools that I would need later on. And then as I got older, when I began to meet white Christians, I, I learned about C.S. Lewis, Francis Schaeffer, and all those people. So that also became part of my identity. So I kind of almost feel like, you know, I, I go kind of go back and forth. I can talk about James Cone. I can talk about Howard Thurman. These are heroes in a black church. But then Absolutely. I love me some C.S. Lewis. You know, I I can I like I like Andy Stanley. So I'm a little bit of both. <laughs> Yeah, it's hard to not like Andy. He's a he's, he's a maverick in the evangelical world. Sometimes I do like Andy somewhat. No, but I get that. That's that's it's it's an interesting um, intersection of of religious backgrounds. I mean, to say the least, with the C.S. Lewis. That's actually you mentioned Francis Schaeffer. We actually had Francis Schaeffer's son, Frank Schaeffer, on the on the podcast not too long ago. Remember that he was a he's written a, he's written a couple books and he's actually was he's a film director too. He's directed a couple films, but yeah fascinating background of that story, but that, that intersection, those two church experiences in my, in my own limited personal experience could not be more different. My wife and I attended a black church and an almost all black church in Maryland for a short time. And we loved it. We didn't ultimately stay because it was exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> what did you love about it? I'm, I'm I love, I love, I love the openness. I walked into that church as one of maybe, it was a big church too. I, I wish I could remember the name of it now thousand people at least, maybe 1,500. Mm-hmm. Um, female, mm-hmm. female pastor, which at the time of my evangelical, uh, in my evangelical life at that point was a problem. I was like, oof, they got a female preacher. I didn't know she was because I'm not sure. I don't know that, to, that she ever preached a sermon like I'd ever heard a sermon preached. I mm-hmm. thought she was singing half the time. Mm-hmm. It was incredible. Nobody sat down, hardly. I oh, mean, yeah. and the service was two and a half hours long. Oh, you, you, but, you got, but I also, <laughs> I got a short one. <laughs> <laughs> what was really cool though was after about my, you know, after a few minutes of my own self-consciousness, I, I never felt unwelcome even a tiny bit. And, and, and we felt way more than welcome. It was amazing. But like I said, I was, I was very young and selfish. I'm like, I don't know if I could do two and a half hour church every week, man. We got to find some place that's a little more drive through. Give me like 45 <laughs> minutes and a, and a, and a hard out. I got to go. But, uh, it was, but those, but those experiences were very different for me. I mean, just even the energy of the, of the church and the, the way that it functioned was different. And then throw in the mix that they, that they had the audacity to have a female preacher. And I was like, Ooh, I don't know, man, this is ruffling all my sensibilities, but. But I, I can imagine having come from that's your background, and then you and then you kind of find your way into a more mainstream evangelical church. It would have been as just as much of a culture shock, right? To go, well, okay, what's this now? A little bit of a culture shock. Let me I tell you a quick story. So one of the pivotal moments came for me came when I was in college, and I, someone evangelized to me, and I joined his church, 
I didn't know it was an interracial church. I just joined it because he was my buddy. And I remember I went away for one summer, and that church had a satellite church in suburban Chicago. And I wanted to go to a Bible study on a Wednesday night because I, I like those kind of things. And I remember going into this really leafy suburban Chicago neighborhood and walking up to this really handsome brownstone apartment. And I, before I knocked on the door, I looked inside the window and I saw nothing but white people. And I remember thinking to myself, damn, nothing but white people. I can't go in there. I don't want to be the only black You know, I just felt like I just didn't want to be the only black guy in the room. And I actually pivoted. It was about to turn around and walk away because I felt like these people have nothing in common with me. They don't know the world they come from. But I knocked on that door and I walked in there. That became one of the best summers of my life because these people I thought I had nothing in common with as I got to know them. They become some of my closest friends. We prayed together. We, we, you know, we would sit in each other's living room and hang out. And that was a really transformative moment for me. And that's why I really talk a lot in the book about the power of these interracial churches when you have different cultures, different races, people together. That's so important. And I think it's biblical. I think that's like the book of Acts. You know, that's Jesus having a, a zealot and a tax collector among his 12 disciples. That's the gospel. So that's something I talk about as well in the book. One of the things that stood out to me when you were uh, talking about the, the black church that you went to, and I, I think Nat will understand, both of you might understand now, both coming from an evangelical background too. I, and I don't remember what you called it, where there was a, a service where people could stand up yeah. and kind oh, of witness, yeah. right? Um, oh, yeah. yeah. Can I get a witness? So here's the, here's the, here's what my background told me though, and why I find that there's, there is a big difference. The church that Nat and I went to would have something very similar, but it would be called prayer requests. And that's in, that's in very large quotes because they weren't prayer requests. They were a chance to gossip about your, your fellow congregants. You serious? It was, oh yeah. It was like, oh, can you, can, you gotta can pray, for that? pray for so and so because I feel a, a spirit of a, adultery. Oh wow. Right. And so when you first started, with the, when it was first starting to be written about, I was like, oh, this isn't going to go well at all. And then it completely did a 180. And I'm like, okay, so that's what that's about. That's what that should be about. Yeah. yeah. And Nat and I were raised in a church that did the exact opposite. It was just, it was a chance for your congregants to just gossip about each other without really, you know, I wasn't, at, I wasn't gossiping. I was asking for prayer for you. And yeah. so I found that very interesting. I found it very uh it, it made it gave me hope, right? That not all churches were like the church we went to when it came to this. And uh, but I, I, did you have any like? Were there any as you moved more into the evangelical? You're, you're sounding shocked. So I'm thinking you did never have the the kind of no, uh, no. situation that my brother and I were in. <laughs> no, no, no. What you're talking about, what we call said, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> we call the testimony time. That's what it was. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. And people would stand up at random and talk and reveal the most personal things about themselves and their struggles and their hopes and their fears. And nobody would judge them. And, and as I said in the book, I think to understand why our testimony time was like that, I, 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 what I said is that... Um, a lot of the people I went to church with, they couldn't afford therapy. You know, church was a catharsis. So we, we didn't have time to be gossiping. We needed help. We needed one another. Because when a lot of those black members of my church left church Sunday, when they went out into the real world, they were looked down upon. A lot of them were blue collar laborers, people that didn't get respect. 
But in the church, they felt listened to. They could bring their burdens. They can, all the racism they dealt with, all the spiritual struggles. So yeah, it was a very communal experience, what I remember. And so when I went to this uh, interracial church I talk about in the book that really helped me, we adopted that testimony time. And it was the same. People would get up and it was real. As, you, as I think about it now, the black people in the church liked it, but the white people didn't like it. <laughs> yeah, because the black people would get up and we would, we would get all personal and share our experiences. And that made some of the white members uncomfortable. But that is part of the tension whenever you try to have a multicultural interracial church. You're going to always have these collisions of culture and sensibilities, but that's healthy. You need that. So anyway, yeah. No, I, I completely agree. It's, it's, uh, it's been the hallmark of any healthy church I've been involved in and there haven't been many, but the ones that I have been that were semi-healthy was the the demographics of that organization. You know, if 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 there was a variety of people represented, that was a you had a much better chance of that being a healthy place um, and not skewing one way or the other. John and I grew up in a really small Northern California town. It's very homogenized anyway. I mean, it, it was white bread to the core. I think John and I had like two black friends growing up. So it wasn't, it wasn't for lack of trying. It was for lack of opportunity mostly that we were, you know, that's kind of the way we were raised. But it's easy to grow up in that sort of insular sort of situation and assume you don't have any issues with race just because you've never really been presented with them. You know, so you can kind of go, well, no, I don't have an issue with, with this. And then you find out later on that, well, actually, there's still some, some of that stuff can still seep into your psyche and you can still, and there yeah. are still things later on to confront. So I, I think the church, when it's its healthiest, is a really great place to address those things. And I wish the church would take a more active role in, in sort of being at the forefront rather than always seeming to lead from behind on a lot of these issues. But that's just my own personal soapbox. But. <laughs> well, to pick up on what you said, one of the heroes in my book, is a white pastor of this interracial church. And it was difficult for him to be the pastor of this church because black members would confront him about some of his behavior that was, he didn't know it, but it was racist. And um, I think those, there was a great scene where this woman who was a leader of, in our church, a black woman, confronted him. And he had to make a choice whether he could see things from her point of view or if he could just hold on to his innocence. And he began to see where she was coming from, and that marked a tremendous growth in the church. And this is a guy who grew up in the Jim Crow South. He said he didn't even think black people were human. And he so for him, conversion was a continual process. It's not like you learn about race and you get past it, and then it's over with. It's continual. And that's one of the things I try to show in my book. It's not enough to decide, you know, I'm going to be this type of Christian who doesn't see color. You always have to go through experiences and kind of check your beliefs. And then you realize, well, I, I got to still work on that. And um, I talk about my, my white aunt, where I thought I had, I had overcome my white hostility, my hostility toward white people. And then I met my mother's sister, my white aunt, and I realized I had not. So, yeah. The chapters of the book where you write about this multicultural church and the way, I, I'm sorry, I forget, his, he has like a nickname, right? That Nibs. you guys call Nibs. 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 Uh, Nibs. His, yeah. His uh, his willingness to not only listen, but listen from a place of uh, I, I, there's there's stuff I need to learn. I have to be you know you can get it's super easy to get defensive, right? That's the easiest that's the easiest response. It's like, well, no, I'm not racist, and then give a whole list of reasons why you feel you're not racist, which 
as you give this list, it's, it's almost like you're, you're defending yourself too much. Um, but to listen, to acknowledge your bias, acknowledge your, your, your internalized racism, right? That is so built into you that you don't even realize things that you're saying or doing are racist. But to be willing to be criticized and hear, really hear what people are saying and how they're hurt. Um, is like a, ha- a hallmark for being able to move forward. And I really, I really like those chapters when you were dealing with it specifically. I, I don't remember the name of the black lady that was, that confronted him. It, but I mean, it would be so easy just to get I mean, yeah, but it'd be so easy to just get defensive, right? And say, no, I mean, that's, I'm not racist. And then here's all the reasons why I'm not. And, uh, it's, it's much harder to, you know, shut your mouth, listen and grow from it, right? And I feel yeah, like that's, totally that's going to be, that's going to, if a church is going to grow and be healthy, that has to happen. And it has to be happened in, uh, transparently, right? Where people know that, that it's happening. Totally agree. I liked what you said though about that conversion process being ongoing. I think that's interesting. Even scripturally, I think we see this. I, I, I really think we've missed the boat sometimes. We don't see, even in the early church, there were, there were racial issues, right? We don't, they weren't black and white issues. They were Jew Gentile issues. And Paul and Peter have to, they squabble about this. And Peter has to be brought around multiple times, you know, and have to have his bell rung a few times by Paul to say, you know, Hey, you're still playing this game over here. So I like that idea. So, cause a lot of, a lot of times there's this sort of pressure to have this, this sort of conversion experience. And then everything's smooth sailing from that point. Like, okay, my eyes have been open. Everything's good. Except that's not the way it usually plays out, right? No, and I think it's wonderful that we can look at those stories in the New Testament and we have those stories, that they're not perfect, that they're backsliding, they're stumbling, they're going back and forth. I mean, that gives us hope, you know, that that this is normal, that this kind of conflict, this type of, you know, uh, I don't know what you want to call it. Sometimes we become hypocrites. This is normal, you know. This is not something to run away something to grow from. And so this guy you mentioned, Nibs, I joked with them once. I said, you've restored my hope in white people. I mean, <laughs> I, I, he's, he's one of my best friends. And it's not because he's perfect. You don't need to be perfect. You don't know that you don't need to be free of racism and all these sins. It's a sin. We, you know, this is part of being human. Just acknowledge it, repent from it and try to grow from it. That's all I need. You know, you don't have to be perfect because I ain't perfect. As I point out in the book, one of the one of the pivotal scenes in the book is when I see my own racism to my mother's sister, where I'm treating her unfairly. And I know that's a big debate among some. Some people say, if you're black, you can't be racist because you don't have power. You know, that's a whole another discussion. But clearly, I would not see how people in my mother's family were reaching out to me. These people I saw as racist. I, w- I couldn't see that they were really reaching out to me and trying to connect with me because I had this stuff about white people in me. So I had felt like I had to put that in there. And maybe part of that reason is because that's the, that's the example we have from the Bible, that you, you're open with this stuff and you move on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that honesty, though, is, 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 what, is what I think is endearing about the book, um, that, that, that level of rawness and saying, okay, listen, I have my own, my own issues I'm dealing with and working through. And you're right. There's, I mean, I'm, I don't. We we can we could hotly debate the right. term racism and whether it applies to black folks and whether or not whether that without any any power behind it, if it's the same kind of, I, I would argue it's not the same kind of, of of experience, right? But that does not mean that you were not capable of prejudging people based upon something superficial. 
which I think is obviously it's the it's the foundation of most of what we talk about, right? It's this idea of coming up and or deciding ahead of time that you know something about somebody <laughs> simply because they look a certain way or or whatever. So I, I do like that. But as you're let me ask you this as a journalist then, maybe you can speak to how those life experiences inform your the way that you you see some of these events that you're called to report on and your ability to maybe to even be objective about some of it. Does that how does that come into play for you? The, the main way that my experience as a journalist has shaped the way I think of my memoir and writing about it is that I've noticed something as a journalist that has really disturbed me. And I hope that my memoir is a kind of an answer to that. And the thing that I've noticed that disturbs me is that I feel like and I've been a journalist a long time, like 25 plus years. I feel like I've meet, I've meet so many Americans now who have given up on America, who have given up on the idea that we can transcend our racial and political divisions. I've never encountered so much pessimism. You know, I had a guy tell me the other day that racism is embedded in us. We can't get past it. And, you know, maybe that's, I, I remember some of the optimism that greeted Obama's election whether you agree with them politically or not, a lot of people felt like, well, this is something good, that we can get past that. And then what happens, you know, Charlottesville, all these, these, these awful videos. And I think a lot of people have lost hope and they feel like that racism is a permanent part of being an American. And so that's what I see in my job all the time. But in my personal life, it was just the opposite. I've seen the white members of my family change in ways I never expected. And I've seen people change, white people change in these churches I've attended in ways I never expected. So part of what I wanted to do with this memoir is say, don't give up on America. Don't give up on one another. People can change in incredible ways. Do you think it's part of that thing, though, too, where those some of those instances, I think of Charlottesville, you know, and and yeah. because they played out on 24-hour news cycles uh, on such big screens and with such platforms that it can... I don't want to. I don't ever want to under underplay the effect of, of those of those groups, but they're. But do you think they get more attention than they deserve, and make it feel like it's a much larger slice of the American population that that feels that way? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I, it's funny. I was talking to my wife about this this morning. I would say I don't know if so much that they get more attention than they deserve. The problem is that those stories are the only kind that get attention. I give you an example of what I'm talking about. So. I was uh, pitching this story to a really high senior editor, my memoir, uh, to a, a high up editor in a mainstream media organization. And he said, we only do stories on books that trigger controversy. And so the media, and I'm part of it, we're only, we're only geared toward covering problems. But to write about solutions, to write about people transcending those problems that we, we're not really... A lot of us don't want to do that. It's harder to write those stories and tell those stories and make them interesting. So that's part of the challenge. Like I tell people, I come from West Baltimore. And if, if I wrote a story about, you know, a young black man growing up in West Baltimore, and I hated white people and I murdered somebody and did this and that. And I think some people would find that story more comforting. But to write a story that I come from this place and yet, I found a way to connect with white people who had really hurt me, my own family members. I think in some ways the media doesn't really quite know what to do. The mainstream media doesn't quite know how to do those type of stories. Well, it seems like they're, I mean, 
seems sort of systemic, right? It's crisis journalism. We we go after the stuff that's flashy and that, that makes big ratings. And yeah, I I think of things like plane crashes and go, okay, well, planes don't crash that often. But when they do, it's big news and it's big news for a long time. These kinds of uh, race riots don't happen with more regularity than they should. But 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 when they do happen, it's like it, it's the news cycle for the next however long. And so I think it can. I don't know. I, I, again, I, I, you're caught between a rock and a hard place. Like, I don't want to give more oxygen to these, to these, to these racist groups than, than we have to, but n- neither can we sweep them under the rug and not talk about them. Right. So it's kind of like <laughs> you're kind of playing with like, okay, well, which, which direction do we go here? Do we confront the issue or do we on the risk of inflating their influence and saying, okay, well, now we're talking about the proud boys way too much. <laughs> like, who are these guys? I think there's a third way. I think. I think we are, I think the Christian church, particularly the white Christian church, is, is facing a crisis. They have to deal with racism. Right, yeah. And I think the country is facing a crisis. I mean, when you have January 6th, that's a crisis. So yeah. I think you, you have to pay attention to that and give way to it. But I think the third way is you also have to find other stories that, that, that offer a counter narrative to the country falling apart and people turning on one another. You have to search out and let me speak from more personal ex- experience. Some of the most popular stories I've done for CNN have been stories that show that. I did this story about a white state trooper who stopped a black man and his daughter for a traffic stop. And, you, and people thought the story was going to be this story where the guy ends up shooting the black driver and his daughter. And instead, the white trooper discovers that this black man is sick from cancer. He prays for him by the side of the road and gives him his cross. That story blew up. It was huge. It was one of the most read stories across mainstream media last year. That showed me that there is an appetite for those other type of stories. If we only tell these other stories where the country's coming apart, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. We have to tell other stories, and that's what I try to do in my memoir. Yeah. I was thinking about it. I stumbled across... Um this was a, a while back, but Van Jones had that series, uh, The Redemption Project. And I was thinking, every time I watched one of those episodes, I'm like, why, why is there not more stuff like this? This is the hard, gritty work of reconciliation. This is the hard, gritty work of people confronting the things they've done wrong, owning the parts of it that they're responsible for. And then somehow or other, I mean, and they don't always end up, you know, in some nice little thing you can tie up with a tidy bow, but at the end of the at the end of those experiences of those encounters, there's usually at the very least more understanding. Somebody can look at somebody who had harmed them and stop seeing them as a two dimensional caricature of evil, and say, "Oh man, there's there's more here than than I've been led to believe." To me, that's that's the hopeful part. I love stories like that. I love those stories where we get to kind of dig below the surface level and see these stories. But the problem is is that those stories. Those are always one-on-one type things, aren't they? I mean, this is a this is human to human. Let's work this out, and it, it just takes time. And I think people are impatient; they, they want to see resolution come faster than that. Does that make sense? No, it does make sense. I mean, we're microwave instant click gratification, but I, I don't think what I tell people is the, the type of change we need. I don't think it happens without. That those those personal relationships, those personal situations. I, you know, I tell people you can't read your way out of racism. You can't protest your way out of racism. I mean, sooner or later, there has to be some kind of change in the heart, and that comes through 
you know, relationships. I'm not saying it's the only way you have changed because I don't want to tell this kind of story that says if black people just hug white people, racism will disappear. No. <laughs> yeah. Racism yeah. is about power. It's about, it's, I believe, it's systemic racism and all that. But what I think people have forgotten is that like being part of interracial communities, uh, car, being part of interracial communities like churches, that is also an indispensable tool for fighting racism. And I think we've forgotten that. It's so much easier in a way to go to a protest as a white person than to actually go to the living room of a black person you know mm. or you don't know okay. try to get to know. You know what? That's totally different. And I would submit that going to that living room or going to the house of somebody, that black or brown person you don't know, is more important to go into the protest. Yeah, amen. There's a there's a, a pessimist pessimist inside myself that says that one of the issues is that Americans like good stories where someone is there is redemption and the end of the story is redemption. But the reason why stories like yours seem to not rise to the, the top of some of these others is there it's not sensational, right? We need we need that person to hit rock bottom. We need that person to uh, have murdered somebody, became become a drug dealer, blah, 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 right? Fill in all those gaps. But I would argue against and say, no, we need more redemption stories like yours. I would argue that your rede- the redemption story in yours is probably more realistic, right? Yes, there are people who end up on death row and they have a horrific story as how they got there. And then there are times where there's these awesome redemption stories. But I, I think your story is more compelling and probably more widespread. Does that make sense? That there are, there, we like to find the people who have done the really, really bad things. But if we were really to look at the percentages of the people who have done murder, or whatever you want to say, uh, and then compare it to people like you, your story is probably more common. Does that make sense? It, it does make sense. And I, this is something I've been talking about. My sense of being a journalist is that people are exhausted. We're exhausted by the religious, political, racial divisions. And my the reaction I've gotten so far from the book has been incredible. From people who tell me they want to read a story like this, and if you read the book, there is no shortage of drama. No, There's there is no shortage of conflict no. or revelation. But one of the things I, I tell people, if we only tell stories that either say or imply to white America that racism is inerasable, what are they going to do with that? You know, what are you going to do with that? What incentive do you have to change? If these are the stories that only apply to this country, we only be racist, white people can never change, white Christians will always be hypocrites and, and Christian nationalists. What, what do you do with that after that? So, and I, and I don't think it reflects reality. It hasn't reflected my experience. You talk about racist. My mother's father, you read about in the book, to me was the racist who terrified me. And we won't get into the ways of how he terrified me because it's kind of really weird and paranormal and all that. But one of the liberating parts of the story for me was to see that you, I couldn't define him by his worst act, that he was more than that, that he felt sorry, he felt remorse in his own way and he tried to express it. So I think when you tell stories like that to people, people feel, this has been my experience, they feel like relieved, like, thank God for another type of story. Right. So, yeah. Well, and then, you, and then through your white aunt 
Mary? Yeah. Is that right? Mary. Uh, you're right. You show, you show redemption on both sides. Yes. You show, and, but you, but don't, and don't, I don't want to candy coat it. It is not easy. There is, there's levels and levels and levels of anger, right? And ignorance on her side mm-hmm. and an inability to acknowledge some of the hurt that she did, right? And then right. there's anger right. on your side. And so it wasn't like you guys sat down and had a meeting and, oh, look at this, kumbaya, we're now happy and we're best friends. You tell the story truthfully. It takes a long time and yeah. it takes a lot of heartfelt conversations where you're, you and she are willing to hear the other person's story. And that's, yeah. that is what this is all about, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a relationship, trial and error. And, and one of the things I point out in the, in the book, I talk about something called uh, contact theory. This is a theory from social science. So this isn't a, a religious theory, but I, I love that idea. So contact theory comes from one of the 20th century's like most influential psychologists, a guy named Gordon Allport. And he wanted to figure out how do you shift racial attitudes? How do we fight racial prejudice? And one of the things he discovered through all these studies and experiments is something I think is really important. He said, if you get groups of people together to talk about race, that only has limited impact. But if you get groups of people, different races to get together for some larger common purpose, that's when the magic happens. That's when racial attitudes start to shift. And that's, so, for example, that sounds abstract. Think about a movie like Remember the Titans. You know, you have all these athletes, these people who are divided by race, but then they get on the same football team and they're working toward the championship. All that stuff melts away. And that kind of happened in my family. We had to, the white and black members had to get together for a larger common purpose. And that was because of something that afflicted my mom that we had to deal with. And, and that's happened with my aunt because a lot of time it wasn't me talking to her about race and how I feel. It was about us just getting to know each other as human beings, taking care of my mom. And that's when things really begin to change. So I'm a really huge believer in contact theory. And I tell people, if you want to reduce racism in this country, create a national service program. We tell kids, we'll pay your way through college. But after you get out, spend a year or two to do something and make this country better. And you will get together with all these different people, different races, different classes, different religions, and you work together to, to do something to help the country, like a, a domestic peace corps. That will do a lot to shift racial attitudes. That's why the military is the most integrated institution we have, because all these different people come together, and they have to learn how to work together for a larger common purpose than talking about race. Well, and your, your father inadvertently became part of this experiment, right? So, mm-hmm. and again, I don't want to give away too much, but this con- this idea of contact, uh, what was it called again? Contact? Contact theory. Um, contact, contact theory. Yeah. Uh, so in his earlier time with the Merchant Marines, prior to the military uh, desegregating, was kind of inadvertently involved in this, in this experiment, which I found very interesting. Yeah. One of the other things that you bring up, I know, I know we're getting close to the end, so I don't want to, like take too much time, but one of the other things you brought up is this this idea. Even as we are working towards becoming more aware of our own racism or our own bias, uh, and you 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 have a story in there where you go, I can't. You go to a store and you have to ask oh, somebody yeah. for advice, right? Well, and you and yeah. you and you subconsciously you walk up to the white guy, right? Because the white guy probably has a little bit more knowledge, and that's 
that hit home for me because uh, as you know, as I'm trying to work through my own internal racism and my own internal biases, and I'm you know, you want to pretend like you're you're on the on the top of this and you're really good. The one for me recently, and I have actually talked to some friends about it, is like I have an issue when someone doesn't speak English very well, and I immediately think that they are not as smart as me because their accent is so thick. But the reverse is opposite. Is, is actually the truth. The, the reverse of that is they know two languages minimum, right? And they're they're speaking English with the best of their ability within their accent of wherever they're from. I only know one. I only know one language. I don't speak any other languages. So I have to get past this idea that this person, because I have a hard time understanding them, can't be as intelligent as me. And that's that's a bias that is like, and you're just like, I don't want to. I don't want to admit that about myself. Because it makes me sound like a horrible human being, but you have to work on that, right? And you have to be willing to discuss it. And so I, I like that part of the book too, because you're, you know, even though we're working through and we want everything to be hunky dory, we still every day have to work at these anti racist, I, you know, becoming more anti racist, getting rid of these biases, right? Yeah. And John, when you, when you admit that to me, and I suspect for a lot of black and brown people, you don't sound like a horrible person. We admire you more because you're honest about it. That's what Nibs did when he was confronted by the black woman in church. You know, he just, she was saying, she told him, we are not surprised by your racism. But if you can acknowledge it, you know, and we can move on, we can work. I mean, racism is a sin. We're all sinful different ways. We have other, I mean, we're not going to be free of it. You know, we, we just have to be open about it. This is a struggle that we have. And people will respect your honesty and we can move on and then we can get better. Well, I, for one, John, think you are kind of a horrible person, but that's just different. That's just, <laughs> that's just that's not the other. There's two Johns in this, in this podcast. Yeah, this, yeah. Is not, yeah, you better. this has, the, this has all, the, uh, all the potential to be bad. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's just my quirky uh, personality coming out. But um, I, do, I think you're right, though, that, that ability to recognize when, when I know John's had this experience where he's, um, I'll tell your story where you you said something on Facebook that was pretty insensitive, and you got called the hell out by somebody. Remember that? Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll explain that one. <laughs> well, no, I just I just mean you had, but you had a choice in that moment to be offended and get defensive, or to say, "Oh, crap. Okay, wait a minute. Hold up. How did that come across? I didn't mean it to come across like that." how can I address this and, and learn from it? But there was an opportunity to go one of two ways, you know, and, and uh, I don't know, I don't, you don't have to go all into the details of it, but it, that was essentially it, right? I mean, no, but it was a learning tool for me. So it was, and, and I thought I was doing something uh, positive, right? So I, I called out some racist BS, but then being the white person that I am, I just washed my hands of it and walked away from my post. I didn't feel the need to go back and look at it. I said what I had to say and I just left it at that. Well, a bunch of people that unfortunately that I was friends with and I didn't realize were apparently very openly racist just blew up the post. And so I woke up the next morning to uh, a black friend of mine calling me out. It's like, you you can't put a post like this and, and not defend it or defend the people that you're saying you're defending. So we had to sit there and just watch this vitriol of all this hate directed at us. And you didn't once call any of these people out. Which, and then it's like, and I went on your page. They're your friends. They're your friends. So, and I had to, and yeah, I my first response was to get angry. My second response was like, 
okay, this is, or this could be a learning experience. So I private messaged the person who called me out. It was like, how, how would I, how could I do this better? And I, you know, I got, I got some information on what to do, um, to, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to make these kinds of statements, you have to be able to back it up and protect the people that you're supposedly protecting. And so that was a huge learning experience for me. And, uh, one, you know, one way it could have gone is me just backlashing and get angry at the person who called me out or learn from it. Right. And I chose, I chose the harder path and that's to admit my mistake and learn from it. And I think, you know, I, I hope I'm a better person for and it. Stop, and then stop posting on Facebook. Well, that's also true. Yes. Yes. Oh, I'm just kidding. I kid. But no, that's, I mean, that's, that's the stories that are compelling to me are the ones where, where people are challenged somewhat to confront things about themselves. And that's why I think your story is so compelling because you do that for yourself. You challenge your reader to do that for themselves. Um, and to see that really it's, it's more complex than we'd like it to be. Obviously, it's, we always love a good, clearly defined good guy and bad guy. Um, it's so much easier. But the truth of the matter is that it, it doesn't usually work out like that. And so, I like the fact that um, your story challenges us to confront our own issues and our own complicity in some of this. So I can't say enough good things about it, by the way. Um, I just, if you haven't bought the book yet, you should probably just pause the podcast, go go online, buy the book real quick, come back and listen to the rest of it. It's uh, it's pretty amazing. But And there's no question of that. I just, <laughs> just, yeah. Well, Nat and I were talking uh, right before you came on that um, we both we both think this would make a great movie. I mean, it's, oh yeah! I mean, it's it's got everything you need. It's funny you say that. A lot of people are saying that. Yeah. No, I I honestly I think this would this could, like you said, it's kind of it's almost like a mystery, right? There's some mystery to it. It's got it. It would it would make a great movie. Um, and I, I if, if no one is reaching out to you yet, I I predict somebody will because I I, I really think it would make a great movie. Thank you. And we haven't even talked about the the strangest aspect of the story, the storyline. Yeah, I, I've been, uh, I've been, you know what I'm, I've been, yeah, I've been like skirting around it. I don't, I don't know how to talk about it without giving it away because I, it's, a, it's a, it's such an interesting part we'll of the book. Talk about it yeah. by letting by letting John say what he wants to say about it. What's the most interesting? <laughs> because there is yeah. a there is a an elephant in the room. We have kind of gone around, which would also lend itself to really cool cinematic possibilities. But man. okay, uh, I'll kind of describe it this way. Yes. So I, I said it's uh, the story is like a mystery, and um, it is almost like a mystery, almost like it strays into sixth sense territory, you know, paranormal territory. I guess the way I would say it is that that there is a white relative that finds a way to reach out to me to express remorse that is really. That is, it's, it's very hard, difficult to believe that it actually happened. And it's, it's, it's a very terrifying encounter, but it's something that I had to write about because it happened more than once. And it happened when someone was with me on all of the occasions. And this, this kind of relationship that I developed with this white relative was pivotal in helping me reconnect and reconcile with my family members. Even though if I told you what happened, most people would believe it. That that just that's not physically possible, but it happened. And believe me, I wish it did. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wish it did. I, I think it's. I think that's. I think that's vague enough that people will be. It'll spike some interest in what is like. What, what the heck is going on right here? Have been peaked. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, it's 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 yeah. I, 
I didn't want to give it away because it, it's such a cool part of the book. And like you say, uh, it, it happens. This, this, this situation happens a few times, and uh, it's hard to explain away. It really is. And uh, I, like I said, I mean, and Nat, Nat said too. I mean, it would add to the cinematic motif of the book. Motif. There you go. Of the book. <laughs> I'm I mean, just throwing words out now. Uh, in its own little sort of je ne sais quoi, you know. Oh, okay. Or, there we go. <laughs> I, I I tell you what. I, I again. I, we appreciate you coming on, man. I appreciate Absolutely. you taking the time yeah. to talk to us. Um, it's always nice to have somebody of your caliber. You write from the heart and you write extremely well. It's a it's a compelling, very, very good read. And I just wish you all the success in the world with it, man. I hope it, I hope it just goes crazy for you. Thank you, Ned. Thank you, John. I appreciate the opportunity to talk and share my story. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch, where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.